Welcome to the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are here with you on this journey every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. In today's interview with Ben Carney, we learn about his research studying long-term relationships, what makes them fail versus flourish, and what questions people probably should be asking themselves before getting married, but usually don't. We also discuss how cultural institutions reward couples who are married, the positive correlation between effective communication and sex, and how much of marriage success sometimes comes down to luck. Dr. Ben Carney has spent the past 15 years studying change and stability in intimate relationships, especially in the early years of marriage. Dr. Carney co-directs the Relationship Institute at UCLA, where he's also a professor of social psychology. He's also an adjunct behavioral scientist at the RAND Corporation, consults for the Strengthening Healthy Marriage Project, and is a two-time recipient of the National Council on Family Relations Reuben Hill Research and Theory Award for outstanding contributions to family science. You mentioned kind of one of the non-negotiables being, you know, having kids or not. And so I think that, and this is something that has come up recently with a couple of people I know, where people realize that either, you know, nope, not even before they get married. People don't talk about that. Somehow, somehow, people don't even talk about that before they get married. And there are so many of these big decisions or kind of disagreements that aren't the ones. There's this piece of advice I love that's kind of, you're not going to still be thinking about it next week. It's not worth arguing about right now. Um, but some of these really huge things that, you know, shape your future in terms of what are your values about X, Y, Z, do you want to have kids or not? The fact that people don't talk about that kind of what other questions would you put on that list, especially since I've long wanted to and plan to compile kind of a, a list for people like the 35 questions you should talk about before you get married that somehow people don't. Well, first of all, those lists exist. Uh, those lists, there's plenty of lists available. Not that it wouldn't be useful to, for you to generate one, but those lists exist. And um, I understand why people often don't speak about them. Because I think there's, there's a couple things going on early in a relationship. And one is <clears throat> that if you like somebody, you want to gravitate towards the things you agree about. 
And that's actually adaptive. So if there's things that we agree about and there's things that we disagree about and I like you, I'm going to spend time talking about the things we agree about, of course. uh, If I have a choice, hey, tonight, what do you want to do? Do we want to have a difficult conversation about something we disagree about that's not a relevant issue that doesn't have to be resolved right now? Or do you want to curl up on the couch and watch Netflix? I know what line I'm standing in. Like, have a difficult conversation that we don't have to have or not? Well, a lot of people are not going to sign up for that. And then, so when does that, the problem, as you point out, is that that leaves us only having that conversation when it's impending, when it's looming, when the sirens are blaring. When it's a reaction to something rather than a prevention of. Nicely said, exactly. And when it's the worst time to have that conversation. I remember um, in one of your other interviews, you basically said that, you know, when is the right time to have a difficult conversation? There isn't one. And I love that. And it's so true. And so obviously some of these maybe shouldn't be forced. Maybe we kind of have evolved to be, uh, to have an aversion to difficult conversations because they're not necessary. But for some of those ones that are, you know, how do we go about either having those difficult conversations or making them easier? Great. Uh, So I agree with you that It'd be very good to have them, especially early <laughs> in a relationship. I'm, I'm saying I understand why people don't, yeah. but of course it's a yeah. good idea to have them. So the trick is, can we have these conversations in a way that doesn't make it hard? So what are people afraid of? You know, what are the things that make it hard? One is, I think people fear disagreement. Uh, a lot of people think, oh no, I'm scared to have this conversation because I'm, a scare- I'm scared to discover that we might disagree. I'm loving this feeling. I'm loving this relationship. I don't want to learn that you and I disagree about something because then I might feel worse about this relationship and I don't want to feel that way. So how do we, how do we overcome that obstacle? It's, it's tough, but I think the strategy is what if disagreement is okay? What if we can sort of stretch our heads around, actually, we can disagree and it won't threaten the relationship? Now, it might be a problem if we disagree about a deal breaker, like kids, but there's a lot, there's, there's room for disagreement that won't be bad for this relationship. And I think the step to getting there is to realize that if you're with someone long enough and close enough, you will disagree. And it's inevitable. It's not something that good relationships don't do. It's something that every relationship must do. The clo- You're not identical to your partner. You'll never be identical to your partner. So the closer you get, the more inevitable it is you will, uh, you will butt up against those things you disagree about. So why not walk into them? You're going to find out about them anyway. I think the, the key to encouraging these conversations, as, uh, even though it's to admit that they might not be easy, and also to wrap that into intimacy, to say that's part of being intimate. It's part of being close to come up to see what is it that you disagree about. I think if we can encourage people not to be scared of disagreements, to accept it as a, as a part of intimacy, you get people on that path quicker and easier. I saw a friend I hadn't seen in a while and I wanted to just I didn't know how to phrase the question because I was afraid it would come across weird but from a perspective of wanting to learn about her relationship and in general i said you know what are your guys's issues or pain points um and 
she just was like, oh, oh, you know, we're working on blah, blah, and gave some examples and just went right into it. There was no reaction. And I just couldn't help but think how healthy of a reflection that was on her relationship, that her reaction is subconsciously just, of course, we have problems, and here they are. Here is an example, and this is how we're working on it or navigating it because it might not change rather than if your reflex or if you're even trying to convince yourself that, you know, that's um, a malicious question for some reason or that you shouldn't have an answer because you shouldn't have problems. Uh, So I just found that really interesting. And I also thought it was, I don't know, for me especially, just a really interesting conversation point to, to learn about people and obviously learning about, you know, what they're going through, but also how it applies to other people and what I can learn, you know, from them to help others. Oh, I completely agree. I think that that your observation, I share it, that people vary a lot in their orientation towards intimacy. And for some people, I think there's two things going on here. One is that some people think that your disagreements are destructive, that a good relationship shouldn't have disagreements. And I think, as, as we've been saying, that that's probably not a healthy position to take because disagreements are going to happen, so you might as well accept them. I think people also differ in how much, how public they want to be about that, because I think uh, that even people who accept that they, that they and their partner might have, right, are going to have right. issues, might worry about being judged. Right, right. So, so she, uh, presumably, a, this yeah. friend of yours knows you well enough. We were rooming together. Oh, we right. were sharing a bed. So, so. she <laughs> knows that you're not going to judge. But a lot of us would go out in the world and say, hey, yeah, I've got issues in my relationship, but it's still a good relationship. And I'm not, I don't trust the people around me will know that. Because we live in a culture that teaches you that the good relationships are the happy, loving relationships. And, and they're always happy and always loving. And there's not a whole lot of models out there in the media or even in you know, um, uh, culture. You know, like There aren't a lot of love stories of you know, relationships that are tough, and challenging and still solid. And uh, I think that does make it harder for people to be public about the challenges it, that they face. And that's, that feeds the cycle. I think if people were more open and honest, saying, yeah, I totally love my partner and these are the issues we have and we struggle with them because that's what intimacy is about, it would actually make it easier for everybody. And do you think that how much do you think that has changed, though, and at least kind of we're moving towards a place of that versus, you know, 10 years or 50 years ago? I, I go back and forth on that question. Yeah. Sometimes, depending, really depending on what I'm watching or what novel I'm reading. So, you know, sometimes I, I see, oh, there, there are some people telling good stories, real, like what I would say is a real love story about real love and all of its messiness. And then I also think that there's a lot of, of very idealistic romantic notions that are still very present. You still hear people talking about finding their soulmate as if there's one person on this planet designated for them. And um, I think, you know, I can see the appeal of those ideas, but I think they're still very much alive. So I, I'm not sure how much there's a real been a, a cultural change. I think that there's lots of ideas out there and they're all thriving. How much do you think that there has been a cultural shift or not in terms of how people view marriage and how 
how much of a societal construct it is, if that makes sense in terms of, you know, it was kind of this, you do this, you do that. It, it, it almost being a, a checked box or like a requirement of some sort, the way people view it um, or idealize it, I guess I'm wondering as society, culture, so many other things have changed so much that sometimes I wonder, has marriage really changed? And is it you know, up to date in comparison to certain other things in the world? Or is it kind of slowly not fitting in exactly? Uh, uh, there's a lot of pretty good evidence that, that marriage has changed. So uh, marriage is an institution. It is a socially constructed, socially defined institution. And as society changes, the institution changes. Uh, how has it changed? So I, I'm thinking about analysis from a demographer at uh, Johns Hopkins named Andrew Churlin, who's one of my you know academic heroes. And Churlin observes that you know in the 1950s, say, marriage was the beginning of your adult life for many people. That's why when you got married, people would give you toasters because presumably you don't have a toaster. People give you blankets and bedding because you're just starting out. Your young person just starting out. You need a toaster and a blanket and bedding because otherwise you don't have it. And then employers want to know that you've got the marriage in place before they're going to give you your job. You have the marriage in place and then you develop your career if you're a man uh, or and even if you're a woman. Charlotte observes that that is no longer the case. That with the rise of birth control that gave women that. A, ability to you know, have sexual intimacy without having a child, with the rise of divorce rates, with the uh, changing economy that meant that a family of four could not live on a high school graduate's income, that you, a family of four requires two incomes to, to survive you know, a middle-class lifestyle or higher. Suddenly, the marriage was no longer, could no longer be a stepping stone for lots of people people who are career-minded, which the economy required lots of people to be, had to focus on their career first. Because, especially for women, marriage interferes with careers. Childbearing certainly interferes with career for women. So over the, between the 50s and the 2000s, economic changes, social changes, saw marriage, saw the age at marriage going up substantially higher for college-educated people. Because college-educated men and women we're saying, oh, I'm, I'm confident I'm going to get married, but I need to establish my career in an uncertain economy first. So I'm going to go to college, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to work on my career, and then when everything's in place, I'm going to get married. Which is why lots of couples now, when they get married, they already have toasters. Over half of all married couples lived together beforehand. They already had bedding. Um, and yet we still have these traditions where they have to register and for all the sorts of stuff that basically they're upgrading their bedding. <laughs> But as long as they didn't have a toaster, yeah. they just have a better toaster now after the wedding. Way better toaster. Way there's better. some Williams-Sonoma stuff Exactly. There. Oh, there's some really nice stuff out there. But it's not the same. And so Trillin says that marriage is now a capstone. Marriage is what you do when everything's in place. Then it's the cherry on top of the Sunday of life. Like, now we're ready to get married. That's a big change. But two things about that change. One is... For people who haven't gone to college, different things are happening. For people who don't go to college, 
for people who don't have a career to hold out for. They're not waiting to get married. Sometimes they're not getting married at all. And when they do get married, they get married a lot earlier and they have kids a lot earlier. Because they're like, well, why wait? It's not like if I wait, I'm going to have a better career. There's not a career waiting for me in the, when I didn't uh, grow up in an environment that gave me access to an education. So what we're also seeing in terms of marriage is a real divergence, a class-related divergence, where college-educated and above are you know, postponing their marriage, but then they're getting married and they're staying married. So their divorce rates have been pretty flat or even going down, whereas people who didn't go to college are either not getting married or getting married early, and their divorce rates are, quite, are much, much higher. So social structures are affecting marriage. But here's the other point. Intimacy. That's not changing much at all. So social structures are affecting the institution, but the bond between two human beings, what it takes to feel close to another human being, that's part of what it means to be a human being. And that's actually, my sense is, is pretty stable. Um, those challenges, you know, are what they are. I, I think there is something to say about the rising age of marriage, which links it to the rising prevalence of cohabiting before marriage. So one of the reasons that that people in the United States are marrying at older rates is that they're living together at younger rates. So it's not that so right now the first age the age at first marriage is close to 29, 28 for men and women respectively in the United States. I don't know what it is in Chile, but if it's higher than that, it's not because people are waiting until their late 20s and 30s to have intimate relationships or even to have serious sort of life partners. They're not. It's just that they're, they're not formalizing those relationships with marriage until later. Mm-hmm. But co- the fact that cohabiting has become such a big thing, again, I'm a, I would guess that's a big thing in Chile as well, so that you have couples who've been together for a while before they get married, and that's different than people who sort of start the relationship, get married, and then live together, which you saw more in previous generations. You touch on... In some of the stuff I've I've heard you talk about before, how much the world privileges in a way or is built for people who are married. And I'd love to kind of hear, because I think a lot of people don't realize that, just hear a bit about that and how you think that plays into that socialization and that construct of marriage as a result. Sure. Uh, it's It'd be hard to argue with the premise that we live in a culture that loves marriage. We live in a culture that romanticizes, idealizes, praises marriage. You know, every romantic comedy, the happy ending is a marriage. And uh, when someone says they're getting married, you're supposed to squeal with joy. And you quite literally say congratulations. Absolutely, this is you've done it. You've done what you're supposed right. to do, which is find right. a life partner. And we have a tax code that privileges marriage, and we have laws that say, oh, you're married? Well, then step right in. You can visit this person in a hospital. Oh, you're not married? Well, stay away. If you're married, you can inherit property from a partner. There's, so, there's a lot of privileges, legal, social, cultural, that we give to married couples that, A, we don't give to unmarried couples. So if you're an adult and you're not married, what do you call your partner? Like, uh, my boyfriend. So in Berkeley, it's a lot of even people who are in um, 
hetero relationships, even people who identify as straight and have a partner of the opposite sex have started defaulting to partner as kind of the pronoun or the the word to refer to their person. Um, And I was in Cleveland. Uh, I wanted to refer to a friend's dad and his, at the time I used the word partner because it's his girlfriend of 10 years. And when I say, oh yeah, her dad and his girlfriend, it just doesn't feel like it really conveys the... Uh, you know, commitment the gravity. of the relationship. And I was thinking, how, what word do I use anyway? So then I said partner. And then, you know, I, I clarified, well, it's, you know, his girlfriend, but of 10 years. And the person said, oh, I assumed it was a male partner. Um, I assumed that just meant that he was in a same sex relationship. And so I don't know what word you use. And I, it reflects the fact that we have a culture that doesn't have a really sophisticated language for non-marital intimacy. And uh, that's, you know, that speaks to the fact that when there's intimacy, you're supposed to be heading towards uh, monogamous, socially recognized commitment that we call marriage. And uh, don't even get me started about how we privilege couples over single people. And the researcher Bella DePaolo uh, has written about this at length. She, she's coined the, the idea of singleism which is a prejudice against people not in a relationship. She's shown in all sorts of research that we harshly judge adults who are not in relationships and and, um, reward adults who we think are in relationships. So we live in a culture that says relationships good, single people not as good, which makes it challenging for people who might, A, be unhappy with their relationships and want to leave, or might be comfortable alone and not want a relationship, or want a relationship but not want to proceed to marriage, marriage, and yet they want their partners to be treated with gravity and respect. So if I say, this is my spouse, everyone knows how to treat my spouse. Uh, if I say, this is my wife, everyone knows exactly what to do. If I say, this is my partner, people don't know what to do. If I say, my girlfriend, people think, well, are you in high school? So yeah, we do live in a culture that privileges marriage uh, as, a, as a stage in life that you should all aspire to which is fine for some people, but not for everybody. And I think it makes it hard for people who uh, don't fit the standard model. Could you explain to our listeners um, a little bit about what self-expansion theory is? Self-expansion theory was developed by a social psychologist named Arthur Aaron. And uh, Arthur Aaron said, what makes love thrilling is that when I form a relationship with somebody, I actually expand my sense of self to include that other person. And the process of becoming more than I was, now becoming not just me, but us, and that you're part of me now, that's a very exciting feeling. It's part of growth. And, and the idea is that we're expanding ourselves through our relationships. And it's, it's what makes that, those first years exciting. Like, wow, I knew what I knew. Now I know what you know. I had my interest. Now I've got your interest. Wow. Now I used to be one person. Now I'm a couple. This is amazing. Thrilling, right? That's because we have a desire for self-expansion. So what happens when I've included you? No, no, no. We've, now I, you've been part of me for a long time. I know what's, what you've got. I'm comfortable with us well, then we're not expanding anymore. Mm -hmm. So self-expansion theory says growth is thrilling. Relationships at the beginning 
lead to self-growth, so that's thrilling. They stop being thrilling when people stop growing or expanding or learning new things. And then people say, oh, this doesn't feel good anymore, and they get disappointed. So what do you do about that? Well, what Arthur Aaron says is, put, invest in expansion. Expand as a couple. There's things you can do. What can, what can you do with, with your partner that says, well, wait a minute, we haven't stopped growing just because I know you now. That's what travel does. That's what learning a new skill does. That's what developing new friends does. Um, and what he's saying, and I think it connects to sort of the things that Esther Perel has said about familiarity not being sexy, is that couples can, that's why hotel sex is sexy. Because, wait, this, the environment is unfamiliar. Suddenly you're unfamiliar again, and then it's thrilling, it's expansive again, and sexy again. It relates also to Esther Perel's work about infidelity, because she talks about how when people cheat on their partner, they're not looking for another partner. They don't want to replace that partner with this other person. What they're actually looking for is another version of themselves. So they've become dissatisfied or they're yearning either to return back to someone they used to be or be somebody they never achieved. They're searching for something else within themselves and just using that other person kind of um, to look for that which they're missing in themselves. And so I think that self-expansion theory is very interesting through that lens. I agree. I think it's a nice connection that um, from the perspective of self-expansion theory, infidelity is another opportunity to feel that sense of Mm self-expansion. So my long-term partner, that's already a part of me. There's no expansion in the unit I have with my long-term partner. Mm -hmm. But a new partner... Well, there is expansion. Like uh, Now I could expand and include all the new things that the new partner offers. So what I'm seeking is the thrill of growth. Which So infidelity scratches that itch. It returns you to like, oh, I remember that feeling that I was growing and expanding. I want that feeling back. Fair enough. And infidelity, okay, one way, a dangerous way to get it. Are there others? And I, I would say, and I think Arthur Aaron says, oh, there are. Arthur Aaron's done research where he gets couples into the lab and he has some of them do an activity together and some of them do an an activity that is new arousing novel and then he follows those couples up over time the couples that do the arousing novel activities together and I don't mean sexually arousing I just mean like physically active but Mm -hmm. new they've never done anything like it before those couples are happier at the end and they stay happier a week later like there's long term effects of doing novel and exciting things with your partner so, yeah, you can have an affair, or you and your partner can do something that's thrilling and expansive together and maybe get some of that same thrill. Think about someone that the more safe you are with someone, the better a partner that person is to explore the world. The, it's a safe partner can actually be a basis for ex- trying new things. Like, there's lots of places that a person might not be comfortable going alone. But with a partner at your side, like, no, I'll try that. As long as we're together, I'll try anything. So I think that's, that she's right that there's this tension. And I think she's also right that it's a tension that couples can navigate. You don't have to be unfaithful to resolve that tension. You can actually get both those things from the same person. It takes doing. It takes effort. It takes investment. The last thing you kind of mentioned this in a few of your comments about kind of connection, what it's tied back to but 
um, how much sexual communication is actually or, or kind of sexual connection also is related to effective communication and emotional connection? Well, uh, it's a question that people have asked, and it sounds like the chicken or the egg question, which is what comes first? Does a good emotional connection lead to better sex? Or does a good sexual connection lead to a better intimate bond? And uh, the answer, won't surprise you, is both of those things happen. So a lot of research shows that couples who communicate more effectively, who support each other, who you know, love each other, also have better sex. But it's also true that for couples experiencing other kinds of vulnerabilities, a good sexual connection can compensate. So that couples that have, let's say, they're high in you know, other kinds of insecurity, but have a great sexual connection, can do as well as couples who are insecure, uh, who, are, who are secure, who, who don't have some of those vulnerabilities. But those insecurities would be outside of the relationship, generally not kind of tension or bad communication. It would maybe be job stress, financial stress, that sort of thing. I'm thinking of people who are sort of insecure about their own, like who have lower self-esteem and things okay. like that. Oh, okay. Got so, it, got it. So sex is both a product of a good relationship and it's something couples can do to make a relationship better. It's mm-hmm. both of those mm-hmm. things. And it doesn't have to be the sex itself. So there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's some great studies showing that that it's not necessarily what you do during the sex act uh, th- that predicts how people feel afterwards. It's the setup. Do you, you know, have candles, music? Like, do you set the stage for sex? And also, there's a great study by uh, Emily Impet and Amy Muse that said that the length of, people, of time people spend cuddling after sex, independent of what happens during sex, predicts um, long-term outcomes. I love that independent of what happens during sex part. That's amazing. Well, I'm going to end it there um, on a great note. Thank you so much for joining us and looking forward to talking more. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sasha. The BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate, is produced by Sasha Laurie in Berkeley, California. Dialogue, narrative, and content crafting by Amy Soper. Audio editing, good music vibes, and sound mixing, Daniel Herrera. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time. Until next time.